And we declared a climate emergency in 2019. And we did it because of accelerating global warming and the city of Sydney being at risk and around the world. But we did it also at a time when we'd already been taking very strong effective action for over a decade. G'day everyone and welcome to 100 Climate Conversations. I'm Benjamin Law. Today is number 15 of what will be 100 conversations happening every Friday here at the Powerhouse Museum and online. And they present 100 visionary Australians taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, climate change. We're so grateful to be here having this conversation today on the unceded lands of the Gadigal. First Nations people on this continent have been sharing knowledge here for tens of thousands of years. Together they constitute the oldest continuing human civilization the planet has ever known. First Nations people are the world's first scientists, engineers, agriculturalists, mathematicians. They mastered how to survive and thrive on the planet's driest continent, which is a feat we're struggling with now. So we're grateful to elders past and present that we can continue sharing important knowledge here on what is and what will always be Aboriginal land. And I'd like to extend that acknowledgement and my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people joining us here in person or watching and listening to this digitally. Our wonderful guest, seated right next to me, is currently serving her extraordinary fifth term as the 82nd Lord Mayor of Sydney. One of the reasons we're talking to her today is because she's led the development and the implementation of the city's internationally renowned long-term plan, Sustainable Sydney 2030. We are so thrilled to have her join us here today. Please join me in welcoming the City of Sydney's Lord Mayor, Clovermore, everyone. Clover, you've been in public office for a remarkable 40 years plus now. When did climate change, looking back, first come onto your radar as a concept and when did it start being taken seriously by government? Well, it was on my radar in Parliament in the 90s and in the 2000s. It wasn't on the parliamentary agenda, though. In fact, I think it really only went on the parliamentary agenda in New South Wales with Matt Keane. Mm. Bob Carr talked about it from time to time, but there really wasn't any action. For me, when I became mayor in 2004, I wanted us to have a long-term plan for the city. And so we embarked on the most comprehensive consultation that the city's ever undertaken. And during that consultation in 2007, people told us resoundingly they wanted us to take action on climate change. Mm. We developed Sustainable Sydney 2030, we did the research, we did the master plans, we made the commitment and then we started doing the work. Okay, this is a very big question, but what is Sustainable Sydney 2030? Because a lot of people who live in the city of Sydney have probably heard about it. People overseas have even heard about what Sustainable Sydney 2030 is. We like the sounds of it, but what does it actually practically deliver? It's about the future of the city. It's about its long-term future. It's about the environmental, the economic, the social and the cultural sustainability of the city. So it's dealing with all of those things. But the overarching and the most important was the environment because we had become really aware about how critical taking action on climate change was. So that's been a, a, a real overriding commitment, but those other areas are also very important. Mm. 
It seems like such an important and noble thing to do, an important and practical thing to do as well. But when you start developing a plan like Sustainable Sydney 2030, and the goal is to make something sustainable, to make a city green, where do you even begin? What is the starting point? (laughs) The starting point is consultation, um, research, and bringing in really good people to work with you too. Mm-hmm. And when we first developed Sustainable City 2030, we, we worked with a whole number of architects actually, because the built form of the city is, is so important. By the time we got to 2019, we did a second round of consultation and talked to our community. And what was really very affirming during that consultation was that the things that mattered to people then, and there are a lot of new people in the city by then, the things that really mattered to them were action on climate change. Mm. They were greening the city. They were um, a, a rich cultural life. It, it, it was about being inclusive, about being affordable. But again, the overarching, overriding commitment was about the action we were taking on climate change. And the people who'd, who were involved in those cons- consultations that had, had been with us on the journey, who'd received all those Sydney City newses that gave them an update, because we set the targets and then we've given the feedback. So we do measure, we do set targets, and then we give, give the feedback. And our staff are all tasked to work to those targets and they have to perform. And our green report is reported every six months. So we very much keep ourselves online with what we're doing. The other thing back in 2007 that made me aware that this was a really important action was that, com- that consultation with the community. But it was also, I went to my first C40 conference in Mm -hmm. New York in 2007. C40 is an organisation that was set up back in about 2005 by people like Ken Livingston, Mayor of London, Bill Clinton, Mayor Bloomberg, Mayor of New York. And it was about bringing cities together from around the world who would make a commitment to work together to address climate change. And that first conference for me was really very exciting. First of all, I met all these other mayors who didn't have very good state governments or federal governments either, especially Mm. the ones in America. Why this is such an important organisation is that the mayors realised that we had to take action, that 70 or 80% of emissions are in cities, and now in the 21st century, the majority of people in the world are living in cities. So that even if national and state governments weren't taking the action they should be taking at a time of accelerating global warming, the city leaders could and it could make a really big difference. And so that was the other real incentive. And it's also another way of of helping us do the work because we go to those conferences every two years, all the mayors meet again every two years and report on what they're doing, share their ideas and are re-inspired. Also, it's a great morale lifter. (laughs) You've got a terrible government, the state's government's not doing anything, your federal government's not doing anything, but you're meeting these other mayors are doing something. And during the two-year period between those sessions, our staff work with the staff of the city. And that first conference I went to in 2007, Los Angeles, and that's an unlikely city to think of in terms of climate change, Los Angeles was the first city in America to introduce LED lighting Mm. in its streets and parks. And they talked about it and it seemed really inspiring, so we came back to Sydney and said, we'll trial it. And we own about half the, the, the lights in the streets of the city and, and, and Osgrid owned the other half. We asked Osgrid to join us in a trial and no, they weren't interested. So we went ahead with the trial mm. and I remember we trialled it in Martin Place and George Street. I remember going out and looking at the lights and that trial was very successful. And so we introduced it right through the city and we're really pleased we did because it has 
contributed to getting our emissions done. It's also saving us $800,000 a mm. year. And of course, there are lots of other learnings. What we have done that uh, other cities haven't done, we share too. I would love to hear more about that. So from that initial C40 meeting in the 2000s, you say you've met up every two years, information, ideas are exchanged in what must feel like an exchange of not just knowledge, but probably commiserations (laughs) for certain situations that you find yourself in too. What are some other practical ideas that maybe people who live and work in the city of Sydney take for granted now, but do stem from those conversations that happened at C40? And what have other mayors learned from the city of Sydney? They've been really interested in hearing from me because I've got to say the reputation of our federal government over the years is out there and how bad we are. And people, people out there know about what the degradation of the, the barrier reef, the people out there know about the appalling bushfires we're having. You know, this is years ago. And so they were very interested that there was a city like Sydney that was actually taking this action. One of the things we did the emissions are generated in our cities and the main areas where they're generated are in the buildings, the commercial buildings and how mm. they operate in the lighting, in the transport. They're the three big areas. So in, a, in about 2008, I invited the CEOs of all the major property owners of, of Sydney to dinner. And we presented to them the work we'd done, the work we'd developed for Sustainable Sydney 2030, the targets we had set and what it meant and why we had to do it and how important it was. And you know, they're not like governments, they're not there for a three or four year period, they're there for the long haul. This is GPT and it's, it's Mervac and it's Dexas and it's Lendlease and you know, those big owners of those big companies. And I asked them, will you join up with us? Will you become a partnership with us? Will you make the commitment to get your emissions down in all of your buildings and properties by 70% by 2030? And they said yes, and it was really interesting. They had never worked together. They were real competitors. Yeah. And bringing this group together was really, really powerful because they're good and they've been very effective. We, it's called the Better Buildings Partnership and each of those major corporations have set up areas uh, and programs and, and staff who do this work. They meet regularly, they work with our staff. They report to me once a year. That's a very exciting session, I've got to tell you. Um, and they have now got the emissions down in all their operations by 63%. Mm. The goal is 70% by 2030. Here we are, it's already down by 63%. They're on track to get them down by 88% by 2030. As well, we set up another partnership, which was called the Sustainable Destination Partnership, and that was in 2018. And that's with the entertainment and hospitality industries. Mm-hmm. Just envisage the amount of energy that a 24-hour operation hotel, the emissions there, and the emissions in theatres and performance, the lighting. So that's also very important. And they're, they're on track to, they've got, you know, much further to go because they started later, but they're working with us too. Um, another uh, group that we've been working with, and that's been quite early, and it's City Switch, and it started in Sydney, and it's gone to all the other capital cities now, and that's the city works directly with tenancies, mm. and they make commitments on how they bring down the usage in their buildings, and that's been very, very effective too, and mm. uh, that's also, as I said, happening in other cities. So they're, they're the sorts of things that um, we have done. and. Hearing about the Better Building Partnership and that all those big corporations joined up to work with us was something that they've been interested in those overseas conferences. Mm. So it was good. I had something that I could say we were doing was something we'd initiated. And it was a real example to government. You know, government failing to do anything, but these big corporations that have a future 
they're mm. do, they were doing something. I want to talk more about the kind of political impediments that might be in your way in all of this. But first, I want to recite some more achievements. Uh, City of Sydney is on track to a 70% emissions reduction by 2030. It's upgraded its fleet to hybrids. It's planted 10,000 trees, provided 600 on-street car share spaces on one of those users actually, installed Sydney's largest building-based solar photovoltaic systems. I've probably pronounced that wrong, but... We put uh, solar panels on all our buildings. Yeah, and, and installed water <laughs> harvesting in 11 major parks, and there's much more of an abundance of bike lanes, which you can see throughout the city. And yet my question is, at the same time, you'll have shock jocks who will be against a lot of these initiatives. Um, I think one of them called bike lanes a jihad on motorists. And I do wonder when you face that kind of opposition in sentiment, or maybe not even opposition, but maybe mild scepticism or cynicism even, what is necessary in persuading people and the community to bring them along with the vision of what you want to do? I've got to tell you, it was really hard. When I started out, we had 1% cycling. Mm. Uh, and I was visiting cities like Copenhagen, you know, <laughs> and I was talking to Jan Gill, and 30 years ago he said that's what it was like here. Um, and he said, it's one car park at a time, one car park at a time, and he had 30 years to do it. You know, I didn't have 30 years. We did a plan for a bike network. And it was new, really, really new to Sydney. And we were starting in Burke Street. And many of you would know Burke Street, Redfern, Surrey Hills. It's the most beautiful street now. Previously, it had been a street of one-way thundering industrial traffic. But a lot of people in Burke Street didn't want it. Mm. And I had all these series of meetings. They wanted to be able to keep parking their car directly outside the front window of their terrace house. And the, the sky was going to fall in. And at each of those meetings, I'd then talk to them about accelerating global warming. And I talk about how this is something we can do. If we put a bike path in, it's a way of reducing the amount of emissions generated by cars, you know. And it was really interesting in those meetings. This is back in, you know, 2005, 2006. I'd bring most of the room around in Surrey Hills mm. um, when I did this. But I have to tell you, the first part of that bike path we opened in Burke Road, Further down in the industrial area, we thought we could start there to be easier. But, you know, quite a lot of those businesses in that area weren't happy either. Mm. So I had organised a media conference to talk to the media with two members of the federal parliament to be there with me. And so I introduced the why we were doing it and, and, and taking, playing our part in taking action on climate change. And there were really angry business people there. And I gave my little speech and I turned around to these two MPs to invite them to speak and I couldn't see them for dust. They'd both disappeared. I won't tell wow. you who they are. They're quite significant people in our community now. And so that's what it was like. And I had Alan Jones. I had Alan Jones every day and I had the Daily Telegraph every day. And when I actually opened the Burke Street bike path officially, it was as though I was opening a nuclear reactor. I had Channel 7 there and, you know, and it was revolutionary. It was terrible. It was the end of the world. And that's where you've got to start and you've got to do it and you've got to really put up with all of that. And it was really awful. But, you know, when we had COVID, the state government, different people in the state government by this stage, um, wanted to partner with us to put in more cycle paths as a matter of urgency to link up various paths we hadn't yet got to because they wanted to provide that opportunity to keep people off public transport because of COVID. And now 
the, both the federal and state government are contributing to the funding of one of our most difficult bike paths, and that's for Oxford Street. And so you'd be able to travel all the way from the eastern suburbs right through our suburbs into, uh, into the city. Mm. And that's, you know, a state minister even had our College Street cycleway um, removed. It had cost us four million to put in. And that, that's how vindictive he was. Wow. The, the irony there was he was a National Party person and his speed paid to tear was in Redfern, in George Street. And I didn't actually realise where he lived. And we inadvertently put not only a bike lane, but also a car share space <laughs> outside his building. And he was furious. <laughs> and uh, it was not intentional, <laughs> but it was really lovely. <laughs> I wonder to what extent is the impediments between working with three levels of government mm. to do with hostility, a vibe there? To what extent is it the structure of the bureaucracy you're working with? And to what extent is it something else entirely? I think it is. I think it's politics. I think it's party politics. If I had been a Labor mayor or a Liberal mayor, it would have been different. Um, the thing about the city of Sydney, it's always been seen as a trophy for government. For decades, governments, Labor or Liberal, have either amalgamated or de-amalgamated the city to try and get the numbers because they like the city. You know, it's status, entertainment opportunities, and opportunities with developers. Mm, <laughs> so, mm. When I first got elected and I started getting those phone calls from developers, I said, if you want to talk to me, you'll have to come and talk to the Central City Planning Committee. So I stopped getting those phone calls. But Bob Carr's government didn't really, he wasn't antagonistic, but he mm -hmm. didn't see much purpose in working with us, I don't think. Barry O'Farrell was very antagonistic to the point where he passed legislation to say I couldn't be a mayor and, and local member at the same time. Mike Baird, he was the worst, I've got to say. He sort of pretended local government didn't exist. But Gladys realised it could be very effective. And when I was in Parliament and she was a minister, I'd worked very, very well with her. So it took the women. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you say it took the women, um, it also strikes me that you are in some ways a little bit before your time in being a leader, an independent leader, that your jurisdiction has really, really firmed up behind. Mm. Now we're seeing on a federal level mm. the rise of independents, not just independents, but independents who are predominantly women and independents who are predominantly women who have won their seats in the federal parliament on the policy and the issue of climate change. And I wonder when you look at this new federal parliament that has just been forged, do you see some hope and optimism there for the role that they're going to play coming in, considering that you have come in as an independent woman yourself. I was so encouraged, I have to say. And it was unexpected, particularly the previous federal election result. I think the world for us here has really changed mm. on our most important issue. And so I think that's so encouraging for all of us. I think we were hopeful, but it was, it was unexpected. I, what I've found in all the work that we've done um, that's been new. If you take people on the journey, they come with you and mm. then they see the difference. But we haven't had anyone in the federal government taking us on the journey of climate change or taking us on the journey of how we have to change how we live and what we do. And government has to change. And it's really big change. Mm. You know, when you think of transition for those people working in fossil fuel industries, it's really big change. And we declared a climate emergency in um, 2019. Mm. And we did it because of accelerating global warming and the city of Sydney being at risk and around the world. But we did it also at a time when we'd already been taking very strong effective action for over a decade. Um, but 
we wanted to alert the federal government and other cities and also our young community, our students, they are on the march. And why wouldn't they have been? Because they're all being educated about the future and they know what's happening. And so he declared the climate emergency. And so after that, I wrote to the Federal Minister for the Environment, Susan Lee. And I said we would declared a climate emergency, talked about the, the work we've done and asked that she take action to respond to the Paris commitment and to introduce carbon pricing and to set up a just transition organisation for those people working in fossil fuel industries. And I got no response from her. Mm. And then on a Sunday night, I got this, we got this phone call from the Daily Telegraph, uh, letting me have a say on their front page article, which was about the federal energy minister, Angus Taylor, letter to me, which I hadn't received, but the Daily Telegraph had, which told me that if, if, if we wanted to do something about climate change, councils could do things, that we could reduce our flying, and why was our domestic bill for, for flying $14 million? So now you found yourself in a culture war. And, I mean, even the journalists of the Daily Telegraph would have realised that this could not be true. Of course, if we'd spent $14 million on domestic travel, our staff would all have been in the air all year. Mm. <laughs> it was so dodgy. The whole thing was so dodgy. And we told the Daily Telegraph that this is simply untrue. Mm. And so they moved it from the front page to the third page. Clover spending all this money on, the, on, on air travel. And my, my final letter from him is one where Angus Taylor apologises unreservedly mm. for making such a mistake and making the comments he had made. Clearly, he was worried about being sued. Is he the opposition treasurer now? Because I, I don't think he's very good with numbers. <laughs> <laughs> it is a story that illustrates, though, how incredibly touchy this issue mm. can be and mm. how it can quickly swell up mm. into personal mm. animosity and hostility. Well, it was just really attacking and we were doing stuff mm. and there's a climate emergency calling on them to do stuff. And so Michael Mann calls it deflection. You don't deny anymore, you deflect. And so he attacks me and, you know, deflects the media off them onto us. I mean, it was all a game, you mm. know. Um, it was, it, well, it wasn't a game, it was... It, it's really, really shocking what they've found. It's a game with high stakes, isn't it? If it it's is huge a game. stakes, stakes for the future of the world. You know, it couldn't be higher. Well, let's go. <laughs> let's go to those stakes because you mentioned the city of Sydney has declared a climate emergency, and all over the world we see cities, states, in some cases even countries, officially declare that there is a climate emergency happening. What is the significance of that, and how much of it is symbolic, making that declaration, and how much of it has practical implications? Well, I think it's both. I mean, there's really serious action we should all be taking. Every time it's talked about here, up till now anyway, they immediately put up all increased power bills, you know, just making it really, really hard for everyone. And sometimes when you have to change what you do, it is hard, but you've got to try and help people do it rather than just talking about all the things that, that are so hard about it. So, and this is what I think national governments have done. And then we went through the period of, of Trump too, and where, you know, it just descended into um, anarchy really. You know, and the world's burning, the world's flooding, mm. and we have leaders make it worse by what they're doing. I really understood where all those young people who all marched and, and gathered round St Andrew's Square in the front of the town hall, many with their parents and a lot with their banners, then by government condemning them for taking a day off school. Well, they've learnt all about climate change, taking one day off school about the future of the planet. 
I think it's okay. I imagine there'll be people watching this via video or listening to it via podcast and thinking, well, that's really great for the city of Sydney, you know, declaring a climate emergency, uh, enacting a lot of uh, practical initiatives mm -hmm. to save on carbon emissions. But I don't live or work in the city of Sydney. I live in regional New South Wales. I live in a coal uh, mining town. There is also a more direct relationship between what the city of Sydney does here and what happens in other parts of New South Wales. So for instance, the city of Sydney's operations are now powered using 100% renewable energy. So where does that energy come from and how does that affect or advantage regional communities? It's a 60 million uh, 10 year agreement with Flow Power to provide us with renewable electricity that will that's powering all of our operations um, and it's coming from regional areas, from um, solar farms in Shoalhaven and Wagga Wagga and wind farm in Glen Innes. And it's providing 600 jobs in those regional areas, um, in the construction, but also in the management of those mm. farms. And um, it's also saving our ratepayers half a million dollars every year for 10 years. So it's such a good news story. <laughs> and so all of our operations now are run on 100% renewable electricity. Mm, I mean, this goes back to uh, City of Sydney being carbon neutral as well, mm. which I think was something that was declared in 2007. 2007. City of Sydney was the first government in this entire country on any to level to be certified carbon neutral. What does that actually mean and how was that achieved? Well, that was at the outset of this work and we wanted to get going straight away. So our first thing we did was we bought green power. And whilst we were doing that, we, we did all our master plans and worked out what we were going to do to start reducing the emissions, not by buying green power, but by changing what we do ourselves. And that's when we introduced the LED lights, it's when we introduced car share, built the bike network, started putting solar panels on every building, energy efficiency in every building, the sorts of things that then the Better Buildings Partnership did there too. So, but we were carbon neutral right from the beginning, initially because of that purchase, then because of all the actions we have, uh, are taking. In 2008, you committed to a 70% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions for the city of Sydney by 2030, based on 2006 levels. You actually achieved this ahead of schedule. Nine years, nine years early in 2021. In 2021. Mm. And so now the focus moves to being net zero emission city by 2035. In all of this, in that goal, is there a sector that's most tricky and problematic? 70% of our people now live in apartments in the city of Sydney. And it's, it's much harder to get people living in apartments to do the work than if you lived in a suburban house where you put your solar panels on and you'd have your recycled water. And so we have another partnership which is called the Green Apartments Partnership. And that's going quite well, but we have a long way to go on that. Mm. And we want to have all of those apartment blocks you see in the city of Sydney all on reduced emissions by 2035. The simplest thing we're saying to both business and residents is go to green power, buy green power. And, you know, if we all bought green power, it would bring the prices down too. Mm. And that would make a tremendous difference and then change the way we live in terms of reducing our waste. It's so good that single-use plastics are now banned. Last state in Australia to do it, but, you know, and it's a, it's Better a late start. than ever, it's right? A start, <laughs> a start. Um, but the, the, the waste issue is a huge one for councils generally. 
because we no longer export our waste. Well, I thought it was an absolutely shameful thing that we exported our waste, that we generated so much waste that mm. in a country like Australia with huge expanses of land, we exported our waste. But we've got to reduce our landfill. We've got to work out ways of dealing with waste. That's one of our big challenges. Reaching every, every residence and every business is another challenge, but we're up for it. We've been talking a, a lot about ways to reduce carbon emissions, but there's also a part of the conversation which is about how to plan better cities and build better cities that are resilient against the effects of the climate crisis as well. So how are you, for instance, tackling the problem of the urban heat island effect? Well, for Australian cities, our biggest challenge in terms of global warming and survival is the heat island effect. Um, and if you think of Sydney and you think of suburbs that are being created as we speak with large grey roofs, every tree cut down, large sites, big houses, small sites, big houses, no trees, mm. and it can reach 45 degrees out there, it's, it's absolutely shameful that's continuing. Um, we're, we're very aware that this is a, a significant issue and we've been increasing our canopy. In fact, we're the only city to increase canopy. Canopy is, is one of the best things we can do in terms of the heat island effect. You know, one tree equals 10 air conditioners. Yeah. We have been planting, 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 creating parks. We've created new parks. We've upgraded all of our existing parks. We've planted trees and we're going to continue doing that. We've spent about 350 million on doing that since 2005. We've allocated another 370 million to keep doing it till 2030. We want our, to increase our canopy by 2030 by 50%. We want to increase our canopy by 75% by 2050. Because we've planted out most of our streets, we're now moving into our median and we're moving on into greening our walls, greening our roofs um, and introducing a planning rule that defines how much greenery should come with each development. Mm. So we're doing all of that and, and that is what all councils should be doing. And what we're doing in terms of the metropolitan areas, we joined the Rockefeller 100 Resilient Cities. And by doing that, I had to make a commitment that I would work with all of those metropolitan councils to work with them on the work that we're doing at the City of Sydney, and that's happening. So that resilience work, all the work we do, we now share. Mm. It's a bit like a mini C40, if you like. Yeah. And that's working really well. I do love having conversations like this because it feels a little bit like time travel. You know, this is what we can expect. Mm. And as we've been talking about Sustainable Sydney 2030, we're having this conversation right now in 2022. Take us into a time machine Eight years from now, what can we expect typical Sydney life to look like? What will we be experiencing by that year? So, a greener city. Mm -hmm. The canopy increased by 50%. We would have completed the bike network, connected up with the surrounding areas. Um, active transport would be part of life. The metros would be completed, or electric buses. There would be good transport, including at night. So young people can go out at night and get home safely. A nighttime economy, Clover Moore? What are you talking economy? about? I know, it's revolutionary, isn't it? <laughs> Run just staying home all the time. I think flexibility in the way people work, I think that's another result of COVID. That's good in terms of family life, um, in, in terms of getting work done. But it's also in terms of uh, reducing emissions, mm. you know, less travel time. So th there'll be more probably outdoor activities happening and that would be increased street life, more affordable workspace. Our buildings would all be sustainable, um, both in their construction phase and their usage stage. Both are very important. 
we would have reduced waste, solved those problems. Majority would be using green power, all those households and businesses would be using green power. The density would have continued to increase, but it would be sustainable and beautifully designed. One of the first things I did when I became mayor was set up a design excellence panel with, with eminent practitioners, and we also have a design excellence policy at the city that when you're doing a development over a certain amount, you have to go through a competition process. We would have completed all that recycling work that we have started now. All homes would have dual plumbing. We wouldn't, the driest content on earth, be putting drinking water down the loo as we do now, you know, so we're working on that now with Sydney yeah. Water, we have a partnership with them. We would have a rich cultural life. We have set aside an area in Alexandria, an industrial area, where we could have developed, you know, a really interesting precinct, um, not near residents, where you could make a lot of noise long into the night. And because we'd have good transport and people could travel at home, we'd have rich cultural activities happening right through the city. And we'd have lots of affordable housing. Hmm. And we'd have an increase in social housing. Now, I have hope with the new federal government that they're going to be really interested in, in working with state and local government on that. Mm. So they're, they're the sorts of things we could look forward to, I think. Well, thank you so much for the work that you've been doing for so long. Could you please all join me in thanking the Lord Mayor of City of Sydney, Clovermore. To follow the program online and to listen and to watch conversations with climate leaders, including MPs Ali Stegall, author Katan Joshi, New South Wales Treasurer Matt Keane, and innovator, businessman, and shareholder activist Mike Cannon-Brooks, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit 100climateconversations.com. And you can also find details there about how to join us for a live recording too. And of course, you can always visit us here at the Powerhouse Museum, where you can watch and listen to all of the conversations that we've gathered here thus far.